what is a car? A car is an amplifier of a human being. You know, we can walk, we can run in most cases, and the car boosts us. It makes us able to go faster, further. Even if it's raining, we stay dry. You know, all of these ways that it kind of boosts us. And so now the same idea that I had when I was a little kid is how can a machine boost the intelligence that we have and make uh, the rest of our lives easier? Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Toyota Untold. This is Allison, alone in the studio, while my co-hosts, Kelsey and Tyler, were off getting the interview that you're about to hear. Right now, the race is on to be the first to market with a product that could not only change the industry, but possibly transform culture itself. Think self-driving cars. At Toyota, one of the voices leading the development of innovative life and product-changing technology is Dr. Gil Pratt. He's the CEO of Toyota Research Institute, which we refer to as TRI. Kelsey and Tyler caught up with Gil not too long ago in Detroit at the Detroit Auto Show, where he gave them some insight into the rad world of high-tech, Toyota style. This is Tyler. This is Kelsey, and we're on the road. I know. And so today we have Gil Pratt, who is with Toyota Research Institute. So how did you get into Toyota? Because you had work at MIT and DARPA. How did... Were you approached about Toyota? I had been an academic at MIT a total of 21 years, mm-hmm. including the time that I was in school there. And uh, then actually I... Uh, I worked to found a new university, a place called Olin College, which is a new college of engineering. That lasted around 10 years. And towards the end of that, uh, I had received some grants from DARPA myself to work on robotics. And so DARPA had gotten in touch with me and asked if I wanted to be a program manager there. And usually, you know, DARPA is so prestigious and it's such a great way to, you know, have a positive impact on the field. When DARPA calls, you say yes. I'm just going to quickly break in and explain what DARPA is. DARPA stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is the organizing body that invests in breakthrough technologies for national security. Uh, It goes all the way back to the launch of Sputnik in 1957. And it's actually DARPA we have to thank for some of the things that we really take for granted, like the internet, automated voice recognition, and the shrunken GPS systems that have made it possible for us to finally just throw out those giant paper maps that, you know, once you unfold them, you can never get them back in the right shape again. So Gil was tapped by DARPA, and now you can see why it was an offer he couldn't refuse. Because while he was there... I worked on robotics and also this new area called neuromorphic computing, which sounds very complicated, but it's actually building computers that work the way that the brain works. And at the time, this was kind of, you know, far future stuff. No one really knew if it was going to pan out. Uh, But it turns out that that became part of the AI revolution that's happened recently. So towards the end of my uh, DARPA work with the uh, DARPA Robotics Challenge and uh, the neuromorphic computing, uh, I was trying to decide what to do next. And so I started interviewing both at universities and also some Silicon Valley companies. It's sort of a funny story. The the night before my interview at one of the Silicon Valley giants, uh, I got a call from Toyota. At first, they didn't want to tell me, you know, what the name of the company was, but they said, we're trying to set up a new research lab. And I said, yeah, that's very nice. Uh, Good for you. And then they said, and the budget is projected to be a uh, billion dollars. Yeah. 
I said, oh. <laughs> like, wait a minute. Now I'm so, listening. <laughs> so suddenly I realized that the company was quite serious. And mm-hmm. then, uh, then they told me who it was. And that's how it actually all began. And when that interview happened, I was so taken by our company's commitment to society mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. there was just you know, no choice that I had to do this, this thing. Wow. Right. And it was amazing. The, the, the first question they asked me, they, they held up a piece of uh, paper because most of the people uh, interviewing me were Japanese. Mm-hmm. And on the paper, they wrote, this was the first thing, they wrote, dementia. Now, how many interviews do you start out by telling the person <laughs> really? dementia, right? You know, my parents at the time were getting on in years. And it was just extraordinary to me that this is actually what the company is thinking about. The fact that society is aging and what are we going to do about it and how are we going to handle this? And so that was the beginning of, of many, uh, many interviews that I had that, that led to the job that I have now. There are so many interesting projects to do in Silicon Valley as well as lots of other places in the world. But the attitude, which, you know, to be honest, you can't fake, right? Of this tremendous desire to genuinely do good for the world. Like, why is it that we build the cars the way that we build it? Why do we treat the customers we have the way that we do? Was just so refreshing and so lined up with my own desires for, you know, what I wanted to do with my life that I just, you know, loved it. And so, uh, so it started with this uh, interview where we talked about aging society and trying to make it a more you know, pleasant thing to do to grow old. And, uh, you know, the fact that lots of parts of the world are becoming much older than they are now. In the U.S., for instance, we have the uh, baby boom, which is going where right now 13% of U.S. population is over age 65. And in another, I think, 13 years, it'll be 20% because this whole group of folks that were born right after World War II are all uh, going to be over age 65 then how do we make the quality of those folks' lives better? Mm -hmm. And it turns out in Japan, it's even worse. So it's already 20% and growing to 40%. And so there it's, you know, a much uh, stronger thing, but it's happening in lots of parts of the world. And the fact that the company cared about that, and of course we have to be profitable as well in order to be effective, but that the goal is primarily a societal goal and the profit is the means to the end. That's what came through. And was it only aging people or were there other societal needs that they wanted to help? Aging society was the number one thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, even this, and this was four years ago, roughly, um, actually closer to five. But the most important thing was to understand that the environment was changing very quickly for cars. And, you know, there's this thing called CASE, right? So connected, autonomous, shared electric, all those four things, mm-hmm. and that they're all happening at the same time. And they explained to me that the automotive business was many decades old, in the case of Toyota, around uh, 80 years old. And throughout that whole time, even though cars had, of course, gotten better every 10 years, you know, they didn't change very, very fast. And now all of a sudden, in these four ways, they were changing really, really fast. And the company needed to figure out how to change itself move as quickly as the environment was. And so the particular area of expertise that I had was in artificial intelligence and the robotics field. Mm-hmm. So that is really what they they wanted me to work on. And that's how Toyota Research Institute was born. A lot of what TRI works on is kept under wraps. 
It's not quite Tony Stark's secret, but it's close. Their current research areas include artificial intelligence for automated driving technology, robotics to help people with mobility, exploring new battery technology, and AI for social communication and business decisions. Essentially, TRI is our own mini MIT. We try to both advance artificial intelligence and also apply it to a variety of fields. And of course, the first one that we do is uh, automated driving technology. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more, but it's how to make cars safer to drive, more fun to drive, uh, more economical to drive, but also to uh, have them be more accessible to people, even if for a variety of reasons they can't drive. So that's sort of the first thing that you would you would think of. The other is thinking about what's next for Toyota beyond cars. And in particular, in the robotics field, if you think about the needs of society as people grow old, it's really tough to grow old now. And people need, you know, increasing levels of care. And yet at the same time, no one wants to feel dependent on others. And um, I think that it's, you know, a, a very difficult phase of one's life? And to what extent can we take technology that's used for cars and translate it into the home? And uh, so that's the next part of it, the work in the robotics field. We have two kind of other things that we work on. One is um, materials design and discovery. And uh, what that is about is helping scientists and engineers that are trying to uh, discover and design new materials for batteries and for fuel cells to do it much more rapidly than they do it now by working in tandem with uh, artificial intelligence technology. It turns out that human intuition and human thinking is really, really good, but kind of slow. And so can you use the computer to accelerate that process of searching for a new chemistry for a battery or for a fuel cell, how to make things less expensive than they are now, things like that. So we do a little bit of that. So that's three things that we do. The uh, fourth one is a new area where we're trying to apply AI to other parts of society. And uh, this is both how to make uh, social communication better and also how business decisions might be made better than they are now. So I think from just talking to people that I know who are, you know, the average consumer, they don't know a ton about automated driving. All they know is that companies are working on self-driving cars and that eventually they won't have to drive anymore. Now, obviously, we know that the technology behind it is way more advanced than that. And there are several steps to getting there. Yes. So if we could boil it down into just generally the definition and and kind of maybe a little overview of the levels, but then a, a timeline and also what TRI is working on and how it's different than the rest of the industry. Sure. So uh, automotive... Automated driving technology generally is trying to do one of two things. It's either trying to replace the driver Mm -hmm. so that you don't need a human being to drive the car, or it's trying to um, assist or amplify the driver so that they become a better driver than they are, or it's a little bit less difficult to drive than it would otherwise be. We're working on both of those things. And our own internal code names for those two different kinds of automated driving are chauffeur, which is where you want to replace the driver, Mm -hmm. and guardian, where you want to amplify the capability. The reasons for doing it, primarily uh, for most of the uh, companies that are out there, 
they're really working on the chauffeur systems most of all. Mm-hmm. And it's primarily an economic reason that they're trying to do it. And so if you think about what is uh, Google trying to do or uh, any of the other car um, OEMs, they see a future where essentially because of shared mobility, uh, perhaps fewer cars will be owned by people. And instead, just the same way that you call you know, Lyft, Uber, et cetera, mm-hmm. you'll call up some type of car. Right. And right now, around a third to a half of the cost of the ride is the cost of paying the driver. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a really big chunk of it. Mm-hmm. And so the reason that this race is so fierce is not to provide automated driving technology for personally owned cars, but actually to make these... Commercial. Commercial taxi cabs mm-hmm. that huh. don't have a human driver and lower the cost of those. And so the race is who's going to be the first to do that and offer the service. And to some extent, it may be a winner-take-all sort of thing because once a particular uh, city is flooded with cars from from one firm that's doing it, it would be hard for others to get in because, you know, there's right. no uh, room for others. The first wins it. That first. is that is kind of what it is. Now, we don't think it's actually true, mm-hmm. uh, but in general, the, the, the frenzy, the reason so many billions of dollars are going into the yeah. field is actually for that uh, reason. And we're doing that too, and we're working very hard on that. But in addition... We kind of have a day job, yeah. <laughs> is yeah. the way that I see it, which is, you know, we're, um, I think, the best uh, car company in the world. And we want to make our product a lot better than it's been in the past. That's always, you know, every day better cars. Now. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to have to wait five years or 10 years or however long it's going to take until uh, the driverless car, the chauffeur car, is good enough to take you on a whole ride without mm-hmm. any intervention by a human being at all. And so we're also working on this guardian side of things. And that's where you're trying to amplify the human driver. And in particular, you're trying to prevent blunders. So in the same way that a, for instance, automatic emergency braking system Mm -hmm. that is on almost all of our cars that are sold in the U.S., in many cases can prevent the blunder of hitting something that's in front of your car, we think that we can extend that to be uh, far more inclusive of all the kinds of mistakes that people tend to make and uh, handle a lot of cases and prevent crashes from happening. And the other part is to truly understand the driver a lot better than is done now. Every person is different. And it turns out people are different at different times of the day, different days of the week. And our AI systems, we believe in the future, will have the capability to really understand the state of attention that a driver has and how good of a driver they are at that moment compared to the difficulty of the driving environment to compare the two of them and come up with an assessment of risk. Hmm. Uh, How likely is it that the driver will blunder in a particular way given what's going on outside the car and given what the state of the human Hmm. being is? And if it turns out that the risk is too high, what can we do to try to help them. And of course, the first thing we can do is we can alert them, watch out. Right. And even the AEB systems, the automatic emergency braking systems we have now, there's a red light that comes on, Mm -hmm. says brake, stop. Mm -hmm. Well, there's all sorts of things that we can do to sort of tell people to watch out. Sort of like a backseat driver in the car <laughs> or, you know, the yeah, passenger. Because you always the right love those. Say, so less annoying. You know. <laughs> 
So, More safety focus, uh, yeah. Right. But, you know, it'll do it in a pleasant voice. Yeah. And yeah. Only every once in a yeah. while. <laughs> and they don't live at home with you. And <laughs> that's, stay that in is, the car. That, yeah. is, that is exactly right. Now try to imagine that the sensors on the car know a tremendous amount of the driving environment around the car. Also, much more about you yourself, the drive, driver, and they decide on an intervention that could even switch lanes. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. All we ever hear about is that you're going to get into a car and it's just going to drive for you. But yeah. they, right. but you're right. There's so many emotions and, and other things that go into driving that I think people forget because they just get in the car and drive. Right. That That's absolutely right. So while companies are taking different approaches to automated driving, Toyota is focusing on chauffeur, which is technology that replaces the driver. And we're focusing on Guardian, which is technology to enhance the driver with things like braking assistance, helping with reaction times, and detecting things in the road. And while it's easy to make the headline of this story, Toyota takes on artificial intelligence. It's actually with safety in mind that these two projects came to be. The genesis actually was from an experience that I had when I was a little boy. And I was in grade school and a classmate of mine was riding a bicycle as I was walking home from school. This was in the Northeast and uh, the sidewalks uh, weren't flat because trees had grown their roots underneath the sidewalk. And the very sad story is that his bike ended up off of the road because of a crack in the sidewalk and a car struck him and killed him. And it happened right in front of me and it was a searing experience that I had when I was very young. Wow. And yeah, just like I can still see it in my yeah. mind. Uh, what I see in my mind is not only my uh, poor classmate that had died there, but also the driver of the car who uh, ended up on a park bench uh, on the other side of the street uh, with his head in his hands, just mm-hmm. crying right. because mm-hmm. of this thing that had happened. Yeah. And of course, it wasn't his fault. There was no way that yeah. he could have stopped in time because of this uh, bicycle using the reflexes of a human being because, mm-hmm. you know, by the time he saw it. So that's been there in my head the whole time. The the other is my experience uh, both as a professor at MIT and uh, Olin College and at DARPA as mm-hmm. well, thinking about something that um, in the AI field is called man-machine symbiosis. So how can you have a computer do what it's the best at and a person do what they're the best at and together you're sort of better than either one of you by themselves, right? And Putting that all together, the first few weeks of the interviews that I went on, I came to TMC in Japan. And at the time, our president did not believe in self-driving cars. And he said, you know, I'm going to let TMC do self-driving cars only when one of them can beat me on the racetrack. (laughs) <laughs> and he was very much, you know, negative on the whole thing. That's our master driver right there. That's our master driver. <laughs> and, you know, Akio is such an amazing guy. And, of course, he drives amazingly well. But he cared tremendously about safety and crashes. Mm-hmm. And his desire was, you know, can we build an uncrashable car? Is there any way that we could, like, lower this, you know, 1.25 million people per year that lose their lives to car accidents? Wow. Boiling all that down, uh, from the experience I had as a child, the work I had done in my profession with man-machine symbiosis um, and what the president had said to me, I kind of came up with this idea that, okay, we can apply the same technology that other companies are applying to Mm self-driving to this goal of a uncrashable car. Mm -hmm. 
And that's the genesis of Guardian. Mm-hmm. And other companies, of course, are putting in driver assist systems also, mm-hmm. like AEB and things like that. But they're not doing it nearly as aggressively as we are. Because I think the goal is different. They're, they're looking much yeah. more at the sort of ro- robo-taxi model right. and all of that sort of stuff. Getting to the mobility as a service first. Then. Right. And, and whereas we're saying, okay, there's this path where we can get from here to there. And I think we appreciated a few years ago more than others uh, how hard it's going to be to get there and how much of an opportunity the Guardian approaches in the meantime. But cars are so much more than just basic transportation. They spark emotion and drivers form a relationship with their vehicle that most robots can only dream of. I mean, I guess maybe the question is, should technology be all about business? There's one other part to it too, which is fun to drive. Mm -hmm. And we didn't see this at first. But the other thing that uh, our president said to me during the interview that I had with him the first time that I met him was that, you know, he loves cars. Yeah. And he said, people love cars. Yeah. Cars are a type of uh, technology. A refrigerator is a type of technology as well. Right. But people (laughs) don't love refrigerators. And why is that? And so I've been thinking about that a whole lot. And um, I think the answer is that a car amplifies your own cap- capability. Mm-hmm. A refrigerator really doesn't. It's just yeah. this thing that's there. It keeps your food <laughs> cold. It's useful, but it's not that it responds to your desire and then mm-hmm. does something more than what you could do on your own. It's also semi-reflection of who you are, too. Oh, it's an expression yes. Yes, you're you exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So the car becomes an extension of you in lots and lots of uh, yeah. ways. So we began thinking about Guardian and whether we could make cars more fun to drive. So right now, I think, uh, you know, people get scared pretty easily if the car gets kind of close to the edge of what it can do, right? If it starts to skid. Get on that Dallas North Tollway close to the barrier in the center. (laughs) Right. Watch out. Now, it's not that we want anyone to be reckless when they drive, Mm -hmm. but we believe that it could become actually more fun to drive if the car was cooperating with you, making the driving task a little safer. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, if you were learning to be a trapeze artist, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no net. Probably not very many people would sign up for that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we actually still have a lot of work to do, but we see the potential. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a very exciting thing because we think that there's more to mobility than being a passenger. Mm-hmm. That actually being in control of the car, having the car be like a part of yourself, an extension of yourself is just a, such an evocative, exciting thing. How can we make it even more so? 